Hello, it's an honor to join you all. I have two little pieces for you. One is a part of my COVID series. It's Okay. Hello, little... it's an honor to join you all. I have two little pieces for you. One is a part of my COVID series. It's called Hey. Okay. Had a little technical problem here. Um, this is Progressive News Network, and I'm one of the associate producers, Janine Moloff. Um, I want to welcome Mirsa Danduit, poet and associate producer. He'll speak for a couple minutes about episode number 20 and our artistic guest. Here we go. And let's see if, if Mirsa is on. Mirsa, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi. Good evening. Oh. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Your case. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to struggle through this because I'm just not the most tech-savvy person. So um, we welcome you to the show, and I'm going to let you just introduce the program. This is very good. That's what I'm going to do. First of all, I will introduce uh, that uh, Dan Bonsanti and Orchestra 14. Okay. And I think it's all been set. Okay. So, should, okay. Can you tell us something about that? Yes, I will comment that? maybe not, not very long, but maybe a couple of minutes. The important things thing are they, the guests, okay. and their art. Okay. Um, we're live now, so if you want to start now, that'd be great. Okay. So, good evening in uh, Central Europe. Good afternoon in the United States of America. Um, we have a very special uh, selection for the 20th episode of uh, the radio series Poets of the East. Um, a very special selection made by Rick Spisak, as uh, usual, uh, a selection which, uh, besides poetry, uh, contains also for the first time today music, that means jazz. As a poet, as an experimental uh, plastic artist, and uh, as an experimenter all in all, as an artist, uh, Rick Spisak knows very well that jazz and poetry are united, are connected, by their um, improvised improvisation character, because poetry is main, maybe the most democratic uh, form of art within literature, and jazz is the most democratic form of uh, of uh, uh, of art within uh, within music. Both of them um, grant to the respective artists, that means poets, respectively. Uh, respectively uh, jazz players, an almost complete liberty of expression in the very large limits of the genre. Um, we have today the pleasure of uh, having uh, as one of the three guests uh, of uh, today's episode of Poets of the East, a real poet of the music, a poet of the jazz, which is Dan Bonsanti, the leader of uh, Orchestra 14, uh, one of the most famous uh, jazz 
uh, orchestras, jazz groups in not only in the United States of America, but all in all in the world. Actually, each of them, the 14 jazz orchestra, comprised of 13 premier jazz and studio musicians and distinguished jazz scholars. Individually, they have recorded, each of them, toured and or performed with uh, many of the greatest jazz and pop artists of our time for, from the big bands of Stan Canton, Maynard Ferguson, Marcel Ellington, Woody Herman, uh, until jazz artists as Billy Eckstein, Sarah Vaughan, Joan Hendricks, Mel Torm, Jacob Asterios, Henry Tarantino. Actually, uh, their specialty, their very fine specialty, is taking a contemporary jazz approach to a very wide assortment of styles. Actually, they managed to adapt to these jazz conditions, to those uh, jazz dimensions and criteria, a very wide, a very large uh, assortment of styles uh, performing from jazz composers until uh, pop or rock artists. It may sound paradoxically, but it isn't. They managed to prelucrate in a very original way even uh, great songs by Paul McCartney or John Lennon. Uh, so it is a very welcome variation within our poetic serial, uh, this uh, uh, poetry of the jazz, this, uh, uh, this uh, slave of the uh, of the liberty uh, of, of of the freedom that jazz offers music just like poetry offers uh, offers literature ladies and gentlemen please listen now to uh, to a sensational uh, interview rick spisak has made with uh, uh, don bonsan with dan bonsanti uh, the leader of the orchestra 14 um, uh, jazz group Let's, uh, let, let us listen to the interview. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to be able to bring you today Dan Bonsanti, arranger, composer, uh, talented musician, uh, extraordinaire, one of the leading lights of jazz in South Florida. And that's saying something because South Florida has some really awesome jazz and has had a history of it. Dan, welcome. Thank you so much. It's very kind of you to uh, invite me onto your show. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, in, in, in a way of introduction, let me just say I have seen and had the great pleasure of hearing this man for decades. And I won't, I won't age either of us by saying how many, but for <laughs> decades, this man has been making incredible music. I'm so glad you could join us. And before I go any further, we're going to do this two or three times. Dan, tell them where they can get their copy of Cartoon Bebop by the 14 Orchestra. It is amazing. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. Um, well, of course, for us, some of us uh, old schoolers uh, that use, uh, still like to have and enjoy playing CDs, um, you can either get them at a very good price now at uh, Amazon.com, or you can actually contact us uh, at our um, uh, email address, the number 14, jazzorchestra at bellsouth.net, and uh, you can get CDs even at less expensive from us, all, all three of our productions. Uh, so that's the best way for that. Then downloads are available at iTunes 
And, of course, whatever app that you have for streaming, we're available on, on all of the apps. So we're, we're available anytime, anyplace. Well, you know, I, I, like I said, having heard you and, and in many ensembles uh, for many years and have been impressed every time, I have to say this is, this is some incredible recording. You've got such incredibly talented players, and uh, if I may say so, the arrangements are kicking. Oh, thank just, you, Rick. Just amazing, man. That's so kind. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure, buddy. I, you know, I, I just re-listened to the album straight through again, and, and I want to try to find a particular one that stood out to me as just an extraordinary composition and uh, just a mind-blazing arrangement. And, you know, Dan, you did so good on this. I really couldn't pick out one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. Thank you. Well, I have to ask you first. Cartoon Bebop. How cool is that? What what prompted you to come up with that? Was it was it a, a forethought, an afterthought? Was it one of those like brainstorming sessions where you're like, okay, I I don't like it. How about how did the name come up? It was a TV commercial. Uh, I, <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, somebody told me they thought it was a Geico commercial where they we had um, Rocky and Bullwinkle and their theme. Part of their theme, just a few little bars here and there of their scene. Oh, yeah. And uh, then I thought about the fact that I had played their theme on a Liberace show many, many times. <laughs> they used to use that for as a, a chaser, meaning that it would take somebody off stage or bring somebody on stage. Right. And right. so I always loved it, and it was a very challenging piece. So I went on the, on the net, and I listened, I think I went to YouTube, and I listened to uh, the original version from the cartoon, and it gave me the idea. Um, and, I, of course, I had to kind of restructure it uh, for our non-musician friends. Oh, it, sure. didn't have a, sure. it didn't have a middle section. It didn't have what we call a bridge uh, uh-huh. of any real consequence that I could use, so I had to restructure yeah. that. And then I decided that I could take elements of uh, a variety of different bebop composers, uh, Joey Parker, and um, for one, and uh, and put together some lines from that that would work well with this particular arrangement. And so at first, it had a different title, and then I said, well, uh, how about just thinking in terms of a cartoon, and I called it Cartoon Bebop. My fear was that it would make the album sound silly, if we used it as a title, but a lot of people encouraged me. They said, well, listen, there's all kinds of opportunities to do creative covers and all of that. So uh, we went ahead and we ended up using it as the title uh, tune, but that's, that was the origination of um, the thought of the arrangement. Well, it just so happens um, <laughs> when I was about to, uh, leave uh, South Florida environs, I decided I would treat myself to one DVD that, that I could uh, connect to the old South Florida scene and, and uh, cre- have a creative vision of my future. 
And I, as a matter of fact, bought a collection of Rocky and Bullwinkle DVDs. (laughs) (laughs) It was my favorite cartoon as a a kid. It was, absolutely. Well, it's a very smart cartoon. Yes. And uh, it had all kinds of other, in the show, all other kinds of characters, Fractured Fairy Tales and Dudley Do-Right and all of those things that, that as a kid in our generation, I really enjoyed. Well, it it was a it was such a, a pleasure to to get this CD and to listen to those wonderful players. My gosh, you really had uh, just one incredible pick of musicians. But you know what? Before I do that, I want to ask you about the dedication to two extraordinary musicians, Ira Sullivan and uh, Mark Holden. Yeah. Well, Talk Mark, a little bit about those two men and what their music has meant to you and to so many of us. Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, Mark Colby and I were like almost like brothers. You know, we we uh, we attended the University of Miami together. He was there a year before I got here and he took me under his wing and uh, we spent countless hours together listening to music and hanging out and then playing gigs together for many, many, many years in all different kinds of settings. Uh, the hotel circuit doing shows, uh, small jazz groups, uh, playing with, uh, uh, at the Bachelors Three in those days with uh, Jaco Pastorius uh, and Peter Graves, Manny and Driftwood Band, and then his orchestra. And then we stayed in touch to go on the road with uh, Bob James uh, and uh, Maynard Ferguson, and all these years when he settled in Chicago, we stayed in touch. And on our second album, it was, I had the privilege of being able to have him play on a couple of tracks, including a solo on a tune called Firewater. And uh, it just was incredibly devastating to so many of us for him to all of a sudden, it seemed, even though he'd had health issues for many years, all of a sudden to, uh, to find cancer. And by the time they found it, he was gone from us in less than, I think it must have been 10 days. So it was oh my uh, goodness. really terribly shocking and, and so sad. I miss him every day. We used to call each other all the time and, uh, you know, laugh and reminisce. And he was somebody that I could ask his opinion about something I was working on. So he passed away in August and only just, I don't think it was much more than a week or a week or two weeks later, uh, Ira Sullivan, who uh, there isn't any way to describe his value as both a person and a musician to South Florida because he mentored so many musicians. Uh, he was the first jazz musician that I heard when I came down to go to school here in the fall of 1968. Now I'm really showing my age. I hadn't even moved into my dorm yet. I was unpacking when guys from the, from the jazz department uh, came over to my room, introduced themselves, and told me they were going to hear somebody called Ira at uh, a, a hotel bar, actually, a motel bar called The Rancher up in North Miami. So they said, you've got to come with us. And I said, well, who is Ira? And they said, well, you know, you'll hear him and you'll know, you'll know who he is. So he, uh, and then we struck a very good friendship. Uh, we played together like many other musicians in South Florida. I'd go and sit in on his gigs after, 
you know, late night after another gig. And he just, and, and used to go to hear him play in a variety of different settings with the best musicians, jazz musicians in, in South Florida. And uh, it's just, you know, it's a tremendous loss to us. I mean, he had a great life. He almost lived to 90 years of age and was still playing. We, you know, we lost about a half a year or a year of his playing because of the COVID infections. And so he wasn't out and about and playing. But I spoke to him not even two weeks before he passed. He, he heard that we, that I had uh, COVID and he called me to see how I was. That's just the way he is. Oh, I didn't know guy. at the time he was suffering from pancreatic cancer. And he hadn't told oh. people. And so it just seems so sudden that he passed. He sounded a little weak on the phone, but he was almost 90. So, you know, I mean, I just, but anyway, it's just, uh, it was an opportunity for me to, you know, produce in the recording to let listeners know that these were two musicians whose contribution to South Florida, not just South Florida, of course, but particularly to South Florida and our music down here. uh, Yeah is uh, incalculable. So uh, anyway, that, that was what prompted me to uh, to put that together and found that neat photograph of the two of them when they were much younger that is in the back of the <laughs> CD. So people have to have the CD in order to really enjoy, I think, all of That's those right. they, things. You're, you're right. You're right. And when you're right, you're right, Dan. They have to have this CD. <laughs> it's, a, it's really, you know, it's so unfortunate. And I understand the convenience of streaming. But for listeners that have a particular group or a particular musician, somebody that they really enjoy their music, they don't realize that these uh, there's no product to sell anymore because people stop yeah. buying CDs and even downloads. Um, there's no compensation. And so there's less and less quality recording that's going to, uh, that's going to take place because if you, whatever money that you spend is a complete loss. Um, you know, you, there's three streams on the average to a penny. So oh you, if, you, if you buy a CD, maybe it generates $6. You buy a, a download of an album or a, a track, there's a decent compensation. But, you know, three streams to a penny, you can have hundreds and hundreds or even thousands and you make a couple of dollars. So there's no way to get your money back when you spend a bunch of money for a quality recording. So anybody that really wants to support their artist, even though it's old school to, to have, um, to have a CD or to do a download with the CD of all the cover information, you know, who all the players are. So I don't think that's going to come back, but uh, it's a great way to support the artist that you really admire and enjoy listening to well i i hope they don't ever go away so i'm and in this one area i hope you're wrong buddy <laughs> i hope i am i can't even buy a car or at least a car now a new car that has a cd player in it incredible yeah so incredible. anyway but um yeah so that's the story behind ira and and mark we just missed them incredibly well, I, I wanted to mention that because uh, I know them both and uh, had the, the great, great honor of calling Ira friend. Mm. And uh, I, I had a chance to uh, engineer an album of his. Wow. Uh, it was such a breathtaking experience. 
Dan, you know, and I know there's there are musicians and there's great musicians, and very very few of them are just truly great human beings. And mm-hmm. Ira was one of them. Oh, absolutely. That's a great. Um, I think that's a great description. Absolutely, that's true. And uh, you know, I don't think any of us will ever hear "Amazing Grace" without thinking of him. That's, that's true. And I don't know that there'll ever be another player that can play brass instruments, trumpet, flugelhorn, and woodwinds, all the saxophones and flutes, uh, up to the same high standard on each instrument. Iris Sullivan was completely unique uh, in in that regard. Um, He was a a one-of-a-kind, really. Absolutely, a giant. Well, and speaking of giants, let me talk to... Dan Bonsani, the arranger. <laughs> Uh-oh. So, you know, I, I am always so curious about the arrangement process and about how you pick the voicings. And I have to tell you, buddy, uh, you know, of course, there's a, a degree of improvisation in many most of these performances, but the arrangements, the voicings, how you're counterpointing the woodwinds and the brass, um, would you say that is there is there a guiding principle or is it strictly the gestalt of the moment how you choose to do an arrangement? I guess it's a combination of, of many things. First of all, I listen to a lot of music before I decide what I think I want to spend my time on. If I'm going to cover a tune, I'm not going to do something original. Then I want to I want to pick out something that either the melody stays with me after repeated listening, or it, you just can't seem to keep your foot still every time that you hear this particular piece, <laughs> even if it's recorded by many different artists. So as an example, I spent probably a good deal of 2018 listening to music to pick out the things I might want to arrange for a project. And it's almost like, I think this might be a, an exaggeration, but I tried to listen to each one of the tunes I thought I might cover for this project a hundred times. I wanted to listen to it until I ordinarily would be so sick of it I didn't want to hear it again. And if that didn't happen, I felt that if I could come up with an, arra- an arrangement that had something a little new to offer, that listeners, it would stand up to repeated listening. And so uh, then in 2019, I began to write arrangements, and usually I would write more arrangements than I would need, so that I could pick <laughs> out, you know, I could pick out what seemed to be the the best things for the project. And so I finished all the writing by 2019, and then we spent 2020 uh, actually, you know, producing the uh, recording to issue it early in. Uh, this year. Um, So in the process of listening to so many different recordings of the same tune, I would actually start to uh, envision some different ways I could approach it, Uh, different ways I might be able to adapt the form of the piece, the colors involved. And so one of my goals is is even though that the band has 13 to 14 pieces in it, 
I try for it not to sound like a big band. I, I want to be able to have the colors that you can enjoy having many instruments, but I don't want the uh, weight of the ensemble to override the colors. And so one of the advantages, and I hope I don't get uh, too scientific with this for, for no, who might be listening, go, go, go. But the, but the color, the, to get the, the sounds I'm looking for, a smaller ensemble forces you to arrange by mixing instruments from different parts of the band, brass and woodwinds using mutes and all different kinds of woodwinds take a different approach to using guitars so that it's an ensemble instrument as well as a, an instrument to accompany uh, solos or, or as a solo instrument. So the um, instrumentation, the the particular pieces that are selected, uh, and then that particular approach is what leads me to to how the arrangements you know come out. And with the new technology that's been available now for quite some time, I use a software called Sibelius when I write, and it has the ability to uh, playback. So unlike the early years where you wrote a score and you had it in your mind, but until you heard it, with all the parts written out, you couldn't be 100% sure what you liked and what you disliked. Now, I can experiment every day. And if I don't like it, maybe I'll spend a whole, you know, a whole day or hours writing a particular part. And then the next day I come back to it and I listen to it and I don't like it. So I can change it, scrap it, do whatever I, I need to, uh, to do. I can experiment. It's a lot easier. It's a tremendous tool. Uh, all the instruments are emulated. Uh, you can even buy all kinds of other software that improve the particular sounds that you're listening to. And it's, um, you get a pretty good idea what it's going to sound like before you go to start to record it. Now you don't have any solos in it. You know, it doesn't have the feel that, you know, that a real performance would, would have, but it's, it's a tremendous tool. And, it just makes uh, it makes the final product, I think, a lot better and a lot easier to organize and put together. Well, you've got so many killer players on there, and uh, I was going to ask you a question, a production question, if you will. Uh-huh. Uh, you've got two associate producers, um, Mike Levine and uh, Mr. Michael Herzog. Yeah. Herzog. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how you worked out the arrangements with the with the producing team. Oh my gosh! Uh, did, okay. Did you have them do some different cuts? Was it overview? How how did that how did that mesh? Okay. Well, M- Michael Herzog, he is also my um, the PR man for radio. So he does all the those promotions, and we've known each other for for quite some time. We met when I was doing some uh, writing for the. Jaco Pastoris big band, you know, that Peter Grace has had. And so uh-huh. uh, we became good friends. And he helps me a lot with with the concepts of the album, like the the title and what kind of tunes and, you know, things related to what kind of audience the band has. And that influences sometimes the selections that I make, uh, how diverse the recordings, uh, I'm sorry, each tune is. Uh, from one another. So he's a conceptual 
um, a, a associate producer, where Mike Levine, this album wouldn't have even been possible without him. I mean, he, he was like a ma- magician. So here in this particular case, the musicians were selected, not only based on their talent and their skills and the fact that I knew their playing and that their, their style would be appropriate for everything that I was going to do. Um, but they had to have a recording studio at home because yeah. we were never going to be able to meet. So every track was done individually, never collectively. Nobody played together. I think oh there might gosh. have been one exception where we had bass and drums on one track at the same time. <laughs> I think. Maybe not even that. And so, wow. okay, so Mike had to take each one of these individual tracks. So what we did was we sent an emulation of the of the uh, score so that the musicians could have something to play along with at a quick track. Mm -hmm. It had the emulated Mm -hmm. score. They would lay their track down. Then they would send it to Mike and Mike would have to create a master and put every track separately into the, into the um, mix. So the challenges are endless. First of all, everybody's microphones and stuff were different. Their environment was different. So we have all of those challenges to deal with. And then, you know, not everybody cut the note off exactly in the same place with their feel. So you have a little bit of editing to do, just like they even did in the analog days, only just not cutting tape, you know. So um, every single track was done that way. And that's why on this album there are some players that are different from our other two that weren't regular members of the band because some of the regular members couldn't record at home. They didn't have their own studio. So here we recorded sure. with players all over the country from from coast to coast, from Wisconsin to Phoenix to, uh, to L.A. So we really did have... Uh, a wide variety of players. I think we had four or five drummers and percussion, had several bass players. Uh, and um, uh, we even had an extra uh, woodwind player uh, to make it easier to get all the tracks done. So everybody recorded in a home studio. I think my brother, Neil, who played uh, woodwind parts on most of the tracks, uh, he recorded at a, a local home studio uh, because he didn't rec- wasn't able to record at home, and I wanted my brother on the album for many reasons. Uh, sure. One reason, of course, is that he's maybe one of the best oboe and English horn uh, doublers in the country, and uh, so I had written a number of things for him to play on. So um, one of the... Uh, Paul Hoyle, who was a recording engineer and did the mastering, he has a home studio, and that's where we recorded Neil's parts. And Mike Levine, I think, did one or two tracks where we had a bass player come to his Miami studio, and we had a yeah a bass player come there, and one of the drummers, Jack Siano, come there to play on a track. He just happened to be passing through, and was at his Miami house and I talked him into letting those guys just do one, one track, an overdub. So that's how we put it 
put it together. It's a miracle. I mean, I, I don't think I could have done this with another engineer. With all your engineering experience, you can really appreciate what, yeah, that, that's right. what, what that took for him to put it together and mix it. He did everything. And he it's, played. It's really and he a played on force. all the tracks except one. He also played the piano and keyboard uh, parts on, on all but uh, one track that Kendall Roy played on. Mr. Oh, Otto. What did he do in his spare time? <laughs> yeah, oh my God. And then, plus, he was also producing his own CD uh, for the Smooth Jazz listener, which is doing great. You can hear it on Watercolors uh, on satellite radio, that station. And I think the last time I looked, and it's probably higher now, it was 39 on the top 100 chart for that particular wow. um, uh, genre of music. So uh, without him, nah, we couldn't have done it. Couldn't well, have done I it. mean, there's so many, so many world-class players on here. Uh, I, I, I don't want to list them all. I mean, Ed Mena, Ed Kaye, mm -hmm. Randy Bernson, uh, Mr. Orta. Uh, yeah. My goodness. Yeah, Peter Erskine on drums is another. Uh -huh. And um, uh, guest, so to speak, would be Mark Egan. And Peter right, Erskine right. and um, uh, Randy Bernson, uh, yeah. who played with Zavano, Joe Zavano, for so many years, yeah. uh, and a, a great artist in his own right, uh, just among you know some of them. And uh, we originally, on Cartoon Bebop and on one of the ballads, is a tuba part. And uh, I had contact with David Bargeron, uh, who I met through. Conscious with Jaco Pastorius, tremendous uh -huh. uh, tuba, bass trombone, and trombone player. I think he played with Blood, Sweat, and Tears in one of the original um, versions uh -huh. of the band. And so he was going to do the tuba parts, but he had had back surgery. And so, and some complications from that. And he just, even though he could record at home, he just couldn't get his chops back. So at the last minute, we ended up taking the parts that I had written and make a tuba emulation from uh, from other software in order to complete those tuba parts. So on the credits, you'll see under trombones, you see my name and then you see tuba emulation. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, so just, I, didn't, just I didn't blow a tuba. That I can guarantee you. <laughs> you know, I, I do want to talk at least a little bit about one song. You know, okay. you, you talked about uh, how you found the pieces that that spoke to you, uh, what rigorous uh, testing and listening you did before you did this. I have to compliment you. As wonderful as the whole CD is, the Day Tripper Blues Buffet, that is amazing. I think I think you did an awesome job with that. To take Thank a you. tune that's been used so many times for so much and is you know, to an extent, the, at least the, to me, the Beatles versions listened out. I can't, I don't really want to hear it anymore. But you did a <laughs> wonderful job with that. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, uh, the, what I tried to do is I, I wanted to write a blues that I really would, you know, could enjoy that would stand up to repeated listening. And, and I also had thought about looking for, a Beatles tune that I thought might be fun to do. I've, I've done many of them over the 
the years, and they yeah. their later compositions do very well with a variety of different kind of jazz treatments. So I um, I don't know. It just like occurred to me I, to blend the two things together. So I said, well, I don't really want to do day tripper, you know, and I really do want to do a blues. Can I? Can I hint at Day Tripper without actually playing the melody? And you did a marvelous job. And that's what that's what you know that's what came out. So uh, it was either going to be that or a blues uh, conglomeration, which is kind of of what it uh, was. You know, taking every blues line you could think of and trying to incorporate them one way or another. (laughs) And so uh, having a great rhythm section, variety of players available. made all the difference in the world. Each one of these players are very versatile, but some of them have certain aspects that are really outstanding. So as a producer, you're looking to maximize what each one of the players does best. You know, my brother, English Horn and and Oboe, uh, are outstanding qualities of, uh, uh, for him. And then, uh, Jason Carter, who does great um, work with uh, as an improviser, but also great work with with mutes. And so I had him play the um, solo on Cartoon Bebop, uh, and he played that in a harmon mute. And then the bass players and the drummers. It's it's easier to find somebody who can play strong and loud than it is to find someone who can play all of the delicacies with great imagination and if you can believe it on every single one of these tracks the first recording was done by the drummers so they had to not only play along to hit and accent some of the ensemble parts but they had to envision what the soloist would want to do before we even had solos or the accompaniment for the solos recorded and so of all the amazing things that took place, I think that was the most amazing thing for me was the job they did. So as an example, uh, Peter Erskine, who has played with everybody you can imagine, and we became friends. We were on the Stan Kenton band together, and then later we played with Jocko together. So we retained a long-distance friendship for, as you said, for many decades and so <laughs> I asked him not only to play on Cartoon Bebop, being the first track, but I asked him to play on, on a lot of the delicate uh, uh, tunes, uh, you know, Wayne Shorter's Infinite, as an example. And when I listened back to the tracks, when Mike put everything together, it just amazed me. It just sounded like everybody was in the same studio, you know, recording together. I, 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 if you'd put a gun to my head and I'd heard it for the first time, I would never have thought that things were done individually. So then I was looking for somebody special for Mr. Rada. Uh, Mike Levine said to me, look, I'm willing to play on every track, but, but that kind of piece is not my specialty. And then Ed Callier told me about um, Kim Roig. And so uh, he just is an incredible player but anything that's in that Latin Brazilian, I mean, he just kills it. And he just sounds absolutely outrageous on, on, on Mr. Rada. And then uh-huh. I had this 
tremendous fast piece got a match featured the the two eds on uh, piccolo and tenor saxophone but also a bass solo and so Mickey Order is one of the most outstanding soloists that we've had in our community on electric bass and Stratopoulos stories so trying to match everybody up the drummers the uh, you know what would be a great piece to feature Randy Burnson uh, you know what what about Mark Egan playing on Wood Dance which he knew he played that piece on my master's recital with with me a Ronnie Miller tune and so Jeez. so looking for all of those kind of matchups were you know many of the things that caught my attention uh many of these players uh Lindsay Blair Tim Smith uh Peter Brewer Ed Kaye Ed Mena uh, Brett Murphy, Jason Carter, uh, Dana Tebow. I knew these players as students through the program when I was on the faculty at the University of Miami. And a lot of us even played gigs together while they were students. Tom Tinko is another one, uh, and he lives in New Jersey, and he contributed on many uh, tracks on tenor and flute. So um, all of these things contributed to what I hope is the best of the three albums that we've uh that we've produced well it's a it's a marvelous marvelous recording uh i really words fail me it, it's just too exquisite for words you did an awesome job producing it and uh before we leave i want you to tell my listeners one more time how can they buy this incredible cd well they can get the cd from at amazon.com and you know, Amazon.com, they take them in small amounts, like you send them five or so at a time. And they've been, you know, even though we haven't sold very many because people aren't buying CDs, I know they just asked us for a restock. So um, the That's newest great. album, Cartoon Bebop, uh, it may take a couple of days before they can fill the order. Uh, you can buy them a little cheaper from us. Like I said, all of the CDs are at Amazon.com, all three of our projects, and the same with okay. us. And so you can get them a little cheaper by uh, contacting us at, at the uh, website, I'm sorry, at our email address, the number 14, so 14 Jazz Orchestra uh, at BellSouth.com. Uh, or they can go to iTunes and they can download a, a track or the album. I think you can even get the cover. I don't know if you can get everything else uh, when you do a, a download. And then, of course, all the apps um, have us uh, for streaming. Well, that's fantastic. Dan, you've done such an amazing job. Uh, I have to congratulate you one more time and tell our listeners you've got to have this CD or at least the tracks, but get the CD, get the information. Thanks so much for being with me today, sir. You oh, have a wonderful day. You too, and thank you so much for inviting me on your show. And uh, uh, stay well. And I look forward to talking with you real soon. And thanks again for including us. Best to you and your family, my friend. Take care. Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Bye bye.
Okay, so that was a selection from Cartoon Bebop. And now we're going to go back to Mirsa, who's going to introduce the next guest. So, on one hand, I was right when talking about the connection between the freedom of poetry and freedom of music. On the other hand, by choosing this exquisite artist, Dan Bonasanti, for today's episode, Rick offered us actually also a different poetry lesson because everything Dan mentioned and told during that wonderful interview uh, Rick made with him was in such poetical terms. On one hand, it was very descriptive and very specific for his work. On the other hand, it was so beautiful. And I'm not exaggerating if saying so metaphorical that it could be a real poem, a long poem, or a couple, a few of uh, shorter poems uh, written, let's say, in a more specialized, in a little bit more uh, specific language uh, concerning the, uh, the specialization of uh, Dan Bonsanti, that means recreating classical music pieces into contemporary jazz. So it was a real, at least a double poetry lesson uh, offered by this uh, excellent, exceptional artist, which uh, synthesizes in such an original way music and poetry. And actually, we don't, we are not going to go too far from this, from this synthesis between music and poetry, when talking a little bit about David Leo Sira, the second guest of this evening. Um, an excellent uh, poet, musician, author of, of music texts and uh, performer uh, for whose characterization I will start maybe with a fragment from one of his own poems entitled Blue Lotus Sutra 108, Pursuit of Stillness. Now is the time to taste and see. It is good what you have made. At the crossing of two hard ways, corner of Canada's road and the church street, stood no temple to Apollo. Upon the subtle, the subtle filaments that became the frame of this wakeful heaven, sacred to local travelers and international sojourners, all seekers of warm wisdom, served in earth tone ceramic cups and captured by the perturbed of true human vision. I'm not going to continue to read this wonderful poem. It's actually real, real suite of po suite of poems by David Leo Sira. Um, I think it was quite an expressive example, quite an expressive uh, fragment of uh, uh, of his uh, exquisite work. Just like Dan Bonsanti, but in a very personal I mean, personally different way, David Leo Sira is connecting, is synthesizing music and poetry, word and melody, starting sometimes by music and improvising, creating, composing uh, words, verses, poems on the basis of music, sometimes by reverse, starting from poems, starting from words, and improvising melodies, improvising music 
on the basis of uh, on the basis of poems. It is one of the most original examples of uh, performance, not performing not only poetry, but performing poetry and music. We know in at uh, this uh, um, this three during this three decade of the 21st uh, 21st uh, century, a very original example of combining and synthesizing art. A second uh, exquisite artist selected by Rick Spisak for this uh, uh, for this really very special 20th episode of. Uh, of uh, poets of the East. We will listen to the material with David Leo Sira, which is made in two parts, and we will still listen each other at the middle of uh, of uh, it. That means between those two parts of the midst of the material. So for now, let us listen to the first part of the material made by Rick Spisak with David Leo Sira. It's a David Leo Serwa. Serwa. David yeah. Leo Serwa, welcome to Poets of the East. How are you today, sir? I am mighty fine. Uh, I, I'm feeling sunny. Well, you can't <laughs> beat that. I, You know, it's <laughs> a coincidence. When people ask me how I am, my typical response, my default response even, is sunny and mild. So, oh, I love it. How, how coincidental is that? <laughs> Sir, it is a great honor to have you. Oh, I, you. I particularly enjoy poets who can find humor in so many of the world's challenges. Because huh, I'm one of those poets who, while it's true, I must address serious topics, even burdensome, difficult life-defying problems. I try to do it with a little sprinkle of humor. Nice. So tell me a little bit about yourself. When did you start writing? I was uh, 10 years old, and I had a really inspiring uh, fifth grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Chassis, who uh, introduced the class to Edgar Allan Poe, which uh, his work blew my mind. And uh, as you know, the sublime is what blows your mind. <laughs> so I was really inspired, and she would give us uh, a writing exercise, write about what you see in this painting, mm -hmm. uh, write a poem with two words in every line, etc. And I uh, got so inspired sometimes when she would, uh, uh, not well, she would, what do you call it, assign one poem. I would write eight, <laughs> for example. <laughs> So I never really stopped uh, to the point of not doing my homework in high school <laughs> to write book after book of uh, poetry. And no overachiever here, huh? <laughs> well, I, believe me, I, I can understand that. More often than not, in my college years, I had professors tell me, look, it's okay. You don't have to do that much. And I said, you know, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. So, you know, Poe, is such an interesting example of American literature. You know, he's in that wonderful spot. You know, you, you kind of got him. Then you got Twain, you know, the mm -hmm. American voice from Hawthorne and, the you know, the East Coast guys. Ray Emerson. Literature is working its way west. Mm -hmm. The American voice is emerging. Um, and I know this is a silly question, but it's one of those you have to kind of ask 
Do you have a favorite poem, Poe piece? Uh, I mean, Legia's pretty good. The Raven right. is pretty good. Uh, pr- Do you have one or two favorites? <laughs> uh, the Raven, certainly. Uh, and uh, I was inspired by his short stories, too. But just the idea of uh, turning the world Ooh. into words. Yeah, the, I translate Paul Valéry, the great French uh, poet, and he says that Poe is the only perfect poet. <laughs> I tell you, he's got, some, he's got some people to, to run up against, that's for sure. <laughs> right, oh, absolutely, absolutely. You, you certainly have to say, if anything, that Poe's poetry is so picturesque, so mm-hmm. powerful visually, you know, how could you read, you know, The Raven, or how could you read Telltale Heart, or how could you read Murders in the Rue Morgue without really seeing all of that stuff? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, painting pictures in the minds of the reader, uh, a wonderful gift that poets have. Uh, Are there any other poets that, that speak to you profoundly? Well, my absolute favorite in English is uh, William Butler Yeats. I have a lot of him... Uh, accidentally memorized just from <laughs> reading so many poems so often. Uh, and uh, aside from that, I mean, Rilke is probably my favorite, along with uh, uh, Valerie Elliott, other people around the early half uh, of the uh, 20th century, so the moderns, I would say. You know, a, lo- a lot a, of them French. I had a, a funny experience. I was a, I was a musical snob. As a young, as a child, I, I loved I classical. Read. I started playing trumpet when I was in second grade, two years ahead of my peers. Mm. I absolutely love serious classical movie, music, Tchaikovsky and Brahms and Beethoven and Wagner. It just, it really just made me just sore. And I was a real mm. snob when it came to popular music and really. The only popular music I entertained at all was jazz. Jazz I love, just like classical. Mm-hmm. But it's funny, there was a poet in the American popular music idiom who, who suddenly turned my head, Jim Morrison. Mm, I, right. I don't know if you know much of his work, but his, oh, yeah. his group, The Doors, uh, I had a, a guerrilla theater group in the, those volatile years of the late 60s and Wonderful. 70s. We used to recite Morrison <laughs> on the podium of a shopping cart, rolling through a shopping center. Oh, that's good. That's re- wonderful. Regaling the audience with, when the still sea conspires in armor, and her sullen and aborted currents breed tiny monsters, true sailing is dead. How mm-hmm. could you not love that stuff? You know? Right. <laughs> I love the uh, American Prayer yeah? CD of his work, recited work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so writing scholastically is kind of one voice. When, when did you really kind of begin to realize that poetry was, was your thing? You wanted to work in it. You, you wrote it for fun. Was that high school, uh, college? Yeah. Like 15 uh, years old, it really caught fire, and I started writing uh, one collection after another, and then 
those little collections stacked into books. And by the time I graduated high school, I'd written like two full-length volumes of about 150 pages each. <laughs> God knows, God knows where it all is now. But uh, what practice, you know? And I have a friend who makes fun of me uh, for uh, not being really uh, a lit crit kind of guy. I can't stand uh, most writing on writing, especially critical writing, because I, I can tell right away the person doesn't understand the poetry and is lost in the halls of their mind. Um, but uh, a friend was joking about me and saying, uh, no theory, I'll practice. <laughs> How, how bad is that? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No uh, sense studying be... the plans of buildings when you just build, you know? Right. Well, as Yates said, uh, there is no singing school, only studying uh, monuments of, uh, you know, that that example. Uh, so uh, studying uh, poetry itself and especially trying to avoid any biography uh, so as it doesn't color, for example, like the writing of uh, T.S. Eliot or other people that don't have such admirable views on the world, despicable even, hor horrifying even, uh, which I just learned about Yeats. Uh, so for the most part, I try to just read poetry, just like in spirituality, I try to just read the enlightened beings living uh, or passed on uh, to get the pure truth, the pure beauty. Interesting. I, um, <laughs> I was so fortunate. I, I had a a relative, an uncle of mine, was an anthropologist by training and a history teacher by default. Wow. And we used to talk about culture. He, he saw me at, at eight reading the Iliad and the Odyssey and said, wow, if you read that and like that, you'll like this. And he started giving me his books on anthropology. So I, I became absolutely enamored of it, cultural and physical anthropology, as just a kid. So you can imagine, I took the history like a duck to water and just loved reading the ancients and Plutarch and Caesar's Chronicles and, you know, all Seneca, all that lovely, lovely stuff. And uh, so it kind of gave me a taste <laughs> for comparative religion. And, of course, that'll get you in trouble. I was, I was raised <laughs> Catholic, and uh, I was uh, barely, uh, almost confirmed when uh, my, my uh, absolutely uh, recalcitrance... Uh, we were required as part of our confirmation, I was raised Catholic, to kiss the bishop's ring. Well, I was the kid who get getting thrown out of religious training class because I asked too many mm -hmm. questions that were deemed impertinent, you can imagine. And uh, so I never heard that we were supposed to kiss the bishop's ring. I, I didn't know it. <laughs> so I found myself standing in this long line, basically every kid I knew at the time, to get confirmed, and I see them at the conclusion of this ceremony, kissing the bishop's ring. And, you know, something in me, I, I'm, I'm picturing in my mind Jefferson and Adams and Tom Paine, and I'm thinking, these guys aren't kissing anybody's anything. This is absurd. <laughs> and uh, ha, when it was my turn, I shook the fellow's hand. Ha, he snatches it back, <laughs> puts it in my face and said, kiss it. Well, I, I wasn't inclined to kiss it when he was nice about it, so I certainly wouldn't do that. And I got myself thrown out of church in front of <laughs> the assembled multitude. So I, I began a study of comparative religion, Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, 
Uh, I read the Quran, the Upanishads, the Ramayana. Territory, I think you're probably familiar with yourself. So, mm-hmm. so I, I really appreciate the fact that you say you've, you've uh, you know, studied spiritual matters, especially the books of the masters. Um, do you consider yourself the current, I guess, term of art is spiritual but not religious, or do you have a, a, a creed, a doctrine that you follow, or, or a, a teacher that you really appreciate? Where do you fall in that range? Uh, yes, uh, for over 25 years I've been a student uh, of an enlightened master from India, uh, practicing, uh, though I'm not really into being in a group, uh, just to kind of the one-on-one experience, the internal experience, mystical life. Uh, I've been studying under a teacher, lived in her ashram uh, for almost a year, and uh, I daily practice uh, chanting, uh, meditation, Good stuff. Uh, mantra repetition, uh, certainly, throughout the day, and try to have uh, a really uh, clear and pure outlook on things, uh, seeing the d- divinity in life. Yeah, I, I taught uh, Kundalini meditation, pranayama, and uh, ran a couple ashrams back in the wow. those exciting days of the 70s. <laughs> and uh, uh, some of the teachers who I appreciated an awful lot were uh, Ram Das and Alan mm-hmm. Watts, and and uh, so I kind of consider myself a Taoist, uh, and like you, uh, not a congregate in any way except uh, that direct mm-hmm. connection in the heart. Um, Wonderful, wonderful. The Tao Te Ching is my favorite book. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, <laughs> I had a, a very interesting experience with the Tao. Um, I, for a while, being a, I, I'm a double Virgo, terribly skeptical. You know, mm-hmm. uh, let's do the science, let's see the experiment, etc. Now, not a believer much at all, and uh, so I was very late to the arena of divination. And I thought, you know, I've gained so much from meditation. I've gained so much from these spiritual practices. I should probably at least give it a try. Give it, you know, give it the study. Look at who teaches these these systems. Try to get an understanding. Long story short, I, I began studying the chain, and I began to really kind of get the sense of it. And uh, in, in another part of my reality, I was drafted. This was uh, the last year of the draft. I was, uh, wow. They were going to send me to Vietnam. And a dear friend of mine said, Rick, uh, listen, uh, don't do that. I'll give you some money. Go to Canada. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, an expatriate artist poet? Wow, uh, that, that sounds mm-hmm. really good. When I thought about it, it really didn't feel like the right thing to do. I felt that as an honest poet, I should go and, and let them take my body. They own my body. That's what they said. But I should basically refuse to give them my mind. So I would go in and speak the truth, which <laughs> is an exciting path to take, but that's the one I took. And uh, huh. long story short, after a series of adventures, I found myself dragged into a psychiatrist's office there at the Army Hospital. Oh <laughs> they they seem to question my judgment. You know, here they are, pro-war, pro-killing. This is all grand, and for some reason, I I didn't feel that that was my my path. So I, I clearly needed to see a psychiatrist, and <laughs> so I meditated on the way. Right, I thought you know, I had no reason for any hope of anything positive. You know, the chances of a a positive person. 
were, weren't really good. Long story short, uh, I had a feeling. I meditated on the way there, chanted Om, and uh, had a feeling there would be a, a clear sign that everything would be all right. I walked into the psychiatrist's office. There on his desk was a cup. On that cup was a hexagram of I Ching. Mm. Straight, broken, straight, straight, broken, straight. The sun above, heaven above, heaven on the earth. The gentleman said to me, I think you have better things to do than to kill people. And I said, <laughs> I think you're right. Ah. <laughs> Wonderful. So, so that was what kind of thing. You see, in reality, there it is. Uh, but enough of that. Tell me, we have been talking now for almost, well, for almost 15 minutes, but we haven't had one of your poems. Let's, let's fix that. Okay. How about sharing a couple of your poems? That's wonderful. Well, uh, I'd love to uh, start with uh, a poem I talked about called I Hear the Bank of America Singing. Uh, it, <laughs> I like won, that. Oh, thanks. Uh, it won third prize in a uh, humor poetry contest, uh, and uh, it is kind of a... Uh, a farce, and it, it alludes to eight Whitman poems, uh, but uh, that's uh, hopefully not uh, what people get if they're not literary types. Uh, hopefully they'll find uh, the humor and the social commentary. Uh, so I'm very happy to uh, to see it both ways, uh, whether someone is uh, quote-unquote literary or not. It doesn't matter to me. I try to write in very simple language and reach everybody, uh, not be academic at all. Never graduated, never got a degree. So... Uh, uh, yes, I hear the Bank of America singing. <laughs> I will go down to my bank by the river and make myself undisguised and naked. I am mad to be in contact with my cash. It is for my fingers forever so youthful and crisp. I could request a red wine vinaigrette to sprinkle upon it. When I heard the learned investment counselor recite the charts and figures, ranging them in a fan formation before me, his basso profundo projecting from the orbic flex of his mouth, how soon, unaccountable, I began to consider linkage. A long-term, low-interest loan, perhaps a business account, and why not? I am huge. I possess more presidents than I need. I will freeze them in space and proclaim myself a corporation. I will not wait in the maze of velvet robes, though I have in mystic play run my fingers along their plush loveliness. I instead must move to the head of the business line and hold the virile teller in my manly gaze. Spending all time, minding no time, while we two chant together, oh, bespectacled investment counselor, firmly tucked into handsome pantaloons and collared shirt, their aroma of fabric softener, finer than prayer. The sniff of the fresh green carpet is a kind of innocence. I hear the Bank of America singing after eating Fleet Bank for breakfast. 
the varied carols of customer service representatives I hear intoning myriad monetary options, cheering the freshman customers and summa cum laude alumni alike, who may complete a brief survey on the nature of their banking experience in exchange for a morsel of milk chocolate. Oh, overdraft protection. Oh, wise avoidance of insufficient funds. In the dusky past, sadly resulting in countless $25 charges. Oh, captain, my erect and fertile institution, I am aching to press my flesh against your million billboards with their ecstatic ethnic business women who eye the easy pass swimmers in their muscular vipers and lexuses and beamers. I, like the late yellow moon sleeping on the surface of the sea, I am heavy with love, with Love. Lovely. Just <laughs> lovely. I love the quotes in there. That's Oh, super, my. Thank super. you so much. Whitman fun. would be very proud of you, sir. Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> it shows I drank volumes of Whitman. <laughs> well, anyway. all I was missing was a roar! <laughs> <laughs> right, my barbaric knock. <laughs> Uh, Before I wave one of mine at you, and I will. Great, great. Why don't you? Okay. Well, you know, I was very inspired by what you just read. And and, uh, like so many Americans, I was very inspired by the activity on January 6th past. So I, I wrote this little tribute to those special patriots. <laughs> it's called <laughs> An Invited Guest. Of the president. I'm so excited. He'll be delighted at our passionate dreams, each uh, unrequited. I'm headed for the White House uninvited. He'll open the doors, he'll roll the rugs off the floors, and let us right in to celebrate the din. So much better to hear than when the crowd gets in, when it roars like the fires in stores and the gaily painted and tainted mob rushing through the door. We'll burst some windows and a mirror or two. He'll join in. What else could he do? We might break a window or two or perhaps stain a rug. But they'll be right. He's in so snug. While we in democracy's graves are dug, we might borrow a laptop and rifle some files. Our public and brothers won't be deniers. They brought us the matches here for our fires. They let us in and around quite right. We're all riled up at government and ready to fight. But these special pleasures taken up, it seems, with the people's treasures, it's the least we can do. Good for me, good for you. They'll love the action when we climb through the windows. We hope in them, like the congressman, surely will dwindle. We'll be welcome for sure, maybe just knock down a door. When the congressional staff huddles within, we're here on social media, which side wins. With a noose and some tie wraps for when the fun begins. We'll be welcomed at the White House. It's our place to use, unless along like it's more just Trumptacious fake news. Oh, my world. 
That is fascinating and, and cutting, <laughs> cutting and uh, incisive and strong. What brilliant words! You're handling such deft, handling such so deftly, such difficult matter, uh, and from an interesting voice, of course. Uh, what a romp uh, of, of truth! A romp of truth from another perspective. Okay, and back to you, Marcia. Actually, after the surreal recital of uh, poetry, uh, rhythm, I can't say music because no music was here, but uh, it was the rhythm, it was the musicality. Mm -hmm. And uh, I dare say it wasn't an interview made by a radio producer with a poet but about a dialogue between two poets and performers. Each of them proved his own way of being a poet and a performer. Each of them proved what performing poetry means. Each of them showed that poetry is, or may be, a combination, a well-balanced combination between thematic, stylistic, and interpretation. That means performance. Performance of the one who is reading or reciting the respective, the respective poem. It was actually, besides being a very interesting and, uh, uh, and uh, enriching dialogue, uh, enriching interview with uh, the poet David Leo Sira made by the poet little by little. Mm -hmm. It changed into a passionating dialogue between two poets expressing their own personal performing art. Actually, what I can say after listening this first part of uh, their dialogue is that um, David Leo Sirois's uh, um, creation uh, has to do very much with improvisation, with the art of actor, with uh, the uh, metaphoric uh, ability uh, which consists in the intonation of the voice, in the uh, inflection of the interpretation of the respective of the respective poem, because the poems written by David Leo Sira have at least three very important dimensions. One of them is what we see on the paper or on the screen of the computer or in the book, in the collection. The second one is what the poet himself is reciting. And it is something completely different. The same poem recited, presented, um, performed by the poet, by the performer, David Leo Sira, is completely different. And the third level is the one of the interpretation, the one of the symbolistic. And uh, it is up to each of our listeners to interpret, to understand, and to find the key of those very deep and interesting uh, poems. Maybe during this week when the link uh, connected, connecting to this uh, 20th episode of Poets of the East will still be active. Ladies and gentlemen, we did our part. We presented 
the poet as thematic and stylistic, stylistic dimension. It is up to you after listening to it, after listening to his poems, after listening to him, to decide and to decipher the deep and complex symbolistic of his poems. Let us hear now, let us listen now to the second part of the interview made by no, let us now hear the second part of the discussion, of the passionate discussion between two poets, two performers, and two, imp two improvising artists, artists, two performers, Rick Spisak and David Liuzira. Sir, how about another? Oh, wow, thank you. Well, since most of my poems are like three plus pages long, I have chosen. Read on, read on, <laughs> I sir. <laughs> I could. Um, but if you like, I'll read uh, a short, like half a page one, and then a one page one, uh, just to be uh, kind to listeners. <laughs> oh, listen, you read on, Macduff. <laughs> uh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, so this is called Eclipsed. Uh, it was in uh, the Bastille magazine uh, and recently translated into German and published uh, German. So anyhow, eclipsed. I want to want one senseless thing. So soak my eyes in turpentine. Fill these pores with paraffin. Numb my tongue. Negate all scent and turn my ears into backward clocks. Still, our moon can shed its skin swim in the blood of its own undoing and make this night a parasite that feeds on street shadows, tired eyelids, and constellations of bedside lamps. Not addicted to being noticed. The moon is gone. Now it unwraps the dustless surface of its glass, wanting nothing but to want the light that eclipsed its antique mask. Lovely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Lovely. Uh, and then the second one, this was in the Bombay Review <clears throat> recently, along with some of my lines from Dreams, which uh, I'm compiling and they loved uh, in India. Uh, this is called Still, a Meditation on Meditation. The dead can do it. From them, I learn to be still and quiet. Still, my thoughts are loud. Still, I murmur in images. Still, there are minuscule movements I cannot control when I sit still. Gentle tremble of hands, eyes, lips and the mind's blizzard of pointed letters. In a not-quite-forgotten, full lotus pose ritual, I begin to fill my body with an expanding soul, steeped in the spirit of the whole universe's blue lotus, one turning. Night unfolds the contours of her charcoal velvet blanket, and I sense my red magnetic spirit drawn toward you more than beforehand 
another movement I cannot control. My emptied hands reach for the circle of light you wear around your dancer's figure across the border river. Echoes of your evening teachings lightning on my inner night's horizon. Electric charges surge through your form, flicker in your liberated laughter, and gentle maple sugar tones to flash truths before my heart's eye. In the beginning was the word, and the word is with you still. Very nice. Thank you so much. Very nice. Listen, I don't want you to be intimidated by time any. Read one of the pieces you're you're happiest with. Oh, wow. Worry not about time, my brother. This can be edited. It may end up in two episodes. Read on, McDuff. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for being such an open inviter. Um, Sure. We live in poet time. Oh, that's great. There's a poem uh, that uh, I don't feel I wrote. People often say this stuff and they're shite. It's uh, then read. But uh, not that this is uh, has to be different than that. Uh, it could be shite also. But uh, I had a vision of a, a, a sitting with a friend. I uh, had a vision of a, a bird made of white fire, a dove, across the room. And it flew toward me and alighted on the crown of my head, and it was really hot. It burned its way down the length of my spine, and I ah. collapsed. I collapsed uh, onto the bed, fortunately, and uh, my mouth started moving of its own volition and uh, started uh, saying a creation story. And uh, I brought it in, and my friend wrote it down, uh, thank God. And uh, so anyhow, I brought it into my poetry workshop the next day with Stephen Kramer, one of the best uh, American poets. And uh, he said, David, because <laughs> I'd written, like, written in trance, blah, 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 and the date. He said, David, your vision needs revision. Your automatic writing could use some rewriting. You could either leave this as a piece of trance channeling or revise it and take it the way of literature. And I hope you do. <laughs> so I've, I've revised it for 25 plus years now. And uh, it's been published a bunch of times uh, in English and uh, in Spanish soon. Uh, and in any case, uh, this is called Song for a Seeker of Eden. Over the face of naked waters, a nameless breath was blowing. In wide wind, white seeds of weakness and weightless days of realization whirled in one confused flurry. A subtle hand separated light from dark, dark from salted sky, and turned to lift solid air above from undulating dark seas beneath. On the second day, a sphere of raw fire was carried up into blank dark to make day. And a round stone mirror rose into the opposing sky in a shower of sparks 
to make night. Our globe's green skin split into countless shoots of wet grass. And the bark of trees burst into soft green flames. Blizzards of birds brought fresh brilliance to foliage. And seven oceans flooded with flashing blue light of countless fish. At the next dawn, dark infant soil learned new red languages, pulses of horses and bulls. Massive shadows of elephants and rams spilled into wilderness, wildness of rain wind. On the following day, a plot of dull clay was shaped into articulate human fingers. Between blood and blood, skin and skin, man and woman, the two took shape. Held in delicate hands of sentient trees, one unique in rich scarlet fruit, pregnant with secrets and seeds that carried rumors of death. Amidst wrinkled branches, a serpent made of the yellow muscle of want wound its insidious whisper. You will know yourselves and fathom the sky if you bite this blood-colored fruit. Each stretched a fleshy hand toward one apple that was their own crimson consciousness. Man and woman shared that dark-starred fruit until their lips bled with vision, taste of sunset, Inside the sky, naked, they ate red within the red as the first leaf wrinkled and blindly fell. Very nice. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, wow. Namaste. I'm going to let that just echo there for a moment before we speak again. Lovely piece, sir. Thank you. And although I was going to share another political piece with you, a a generous piece called Conservative and Liberal Mind, and I drew some parallels and tried to see the the underlying unity, but instead I'm so inspired – by the oh, spiritual uh, poem that you just read, I will offer you one of mine. Great. And so that you understand the genesis of this one, as you were so kind to share your genesis. Um, I work from time to time with some friends in, a, a, let's say, a coven, who do their work in the ancient Celtic traditions. They occasionally ask me to, to provide a meditation. So for a summer solstice, I wrote this. It's called Golden Bees. Golden Bees. Follow me. Oh, my golden bees. Up, up, and out. 
of our glowing geometric home, our perfect living comb, to every bee's dream, our theme and gentle fanned rest, up, up and out into the sacred sun-drenched garden where every aromatic flower's face warmed by your gentle golden touch. See the arcing blessed rays, how each reachy beam buffets with its gentle caress every morning moment of life's growing flight. How every flower shines and shimmers with that very moment of your warm and generous blessings heat. How rich the velvet golden fire showers its blessing and casts its spell of warm sympathy that the dear plant so thirsty drink and endear moment by moment into their every fiber and being. Shine on my sparkling silvered wings thy embracing warmth that does guide and bless each and all the earth with its gentle, loving breath. Light our way with your warm, buttery blessing, for it is only by thy dancing rainbow light we have found our path illumined across the delirious, scented garden. And then, diving deep into the very heart of heaven's blossom, each beating magnetic moment of your star files pulsing embrace thrills our very blood with your infinite golden reach. Deep will I dive into each flower's living heart while they dress me and dance me in their sweetness perfume. Your generous bounty of all below warms us and delights our every moment along your dazzling bejeweled path. Finding our way across thy beneficent begarland glory, gilded richly with your weighty golden handiwork, Grant us, O golden God, we, your busy, buzzing toilers, grant us that sweet sustenance from your scented, intoxicating, and so generous bounty. Diving deep from our arcing, soaring paths down into the deepest flower center, guided ever by your all-penetrating beams, each iridescent, beating flower's heart pulses in an intoxicating bounty of ambered sweet beads of delis delicious, delirious delight. Cover us in your fine powdered glory as we drink in these pretty flower fountains, nourished ever from your all-streaming generous heart. I fairly swoon and sway, so bedecked am I from your amorous, amorous scented embrace. Carry we home our golden booty, from the very shining heart. Back, back to our dearest, sweet, and golden, glowy home. Deliver we out our charge of grace. Pour we out each journey's bounty, lifted from our labors in your scented and flavored truth. Sunbeams guided are every flying moment by your intimate and distant reach, fiery, licking power. Our great home, but the geometric factored shadow of your golden, glancing bounty. Our innermost strength only flows from your vital power's truth. No flower's shining glory except through your showering glory spent. We return, bedecked, rich, and happily burdened by your gracious garden's bounty, so soaring, guided, gilded by our sun's great, powerful blessing. O great and glorious sun, whose unblinking power guides and warms our flighty path, 
and ever richly rains her golden blessings on every garden's shining face. Light, O oh ever light thou our airy road, and be forever our endless fountain of starry grace. Mm. Holy word. <laughs> I'm letting that echo also. Wow, how rich and exquisite and uh, delightful and delicious and full of light. Uh, I've rarely seen someone touch on uh, the uh, concept or the really the reality of light uh, and do it uh, eloquently. You know, we have to go back to Dante or Milton or other places to find it and the great poet saints of India like Nyaneshwar Maharaj, for example, who wrote a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. So uh, I was stunned. And you have uh, such language like uh, glowy and reachy, which are very fresh and uh, inventive, uh, as well as such a uh, very specific uh, imagistic uh, description of uh, going into the heart of flowers, for example. I've never seen anything like that. And it conjures such pictures in my head that I was uh, really blown away by the content uh, as well as the formal. Thank you, brother. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you, yeah. Wow. Well, my friends, the, the spiritual group, uh, they enjoyed it as well. And <laughs> I... Uh, I, I only bring this one out to when uh, I'm with with other poets who have uh, have some spiritual heart, and mm. I, I do treat you that way, sir. Wow, thank you. It is you. an honor, a great honor to have you with us. Would you like to close with one more, sir? Uh, sure. I will. Uh, I'll leave y'all on a funny note. Good. Uh, Good. I'm 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 better known, uh, like in in Paris. Uh, I think one of the reasons I got popular among my uh, anglophone expat. A uh, crowd of actors and singers and writers uh, that I miss and love so much uh, and get to see on my show, Spoken World Online, which uh, is an extension of Spoken Word Paris. Uh, they love uh, and, uh, and see me as a giver of these poems to pigeons. Uh, I, it's kind of an answer to Ted Hughes' uh, book, Crow, but that doesn't matter. Uh, I, uh, I really enjoy uh, uh, sharing a different look at pigeons and uh, couching some social uh, criticism uh, in funny lines. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you be the judge of whether it's funny or not. This is called The Secret Pigeons Ball, and it's from my little book, Humble Doves, Poems uh, to Pigeons and Plants, which I just put out on Amazon. Uh, the Secret Pigeons Ball. Of all the unbidden pigeons in this half-hidden park, Dave's fave is different. She refuses to wear their scarf of blue and green tradition. She models the color coffee ice cream, free to be alone and unbothered, crooning tones of cool. Does she know she's odd? Dressed up for some private event, a secret pigeon's ball where several colors of feeling mingle and merge into brown. Play-Doh in my eight-year-old hands when I nabbed the new year in my mind. Tall, gold, neon, 
1979 sign and got into Time's toy train to race faster, ever faster, into Paris proper, where in an overlooked park, a smart, illiterate pigeon, quite quiet, unaware of my stare, washes her long wing feathers in a fountain of sunshine. The essence of fashion is feeling good looking. Very nice. Very <laughs> nice. Oh, laugh so much writing that book. <laughs> it it was <laughs> so lovely that you drew these parallels with the should we say the the preening pigeon and all that we think of as uh, high fashion. Uh, lovely, <laughs> lovely piece. And I think you, you draw it very well. Uh, I, I, I like Thank your... You. The sound of poetry is always very special to me, how people mm -hmm. use the language. And I, I really enjoyed your choice of words. Uh, I, I, I kind of felt, sensed the pigeon pecking. I sort of <laughs> felt, sensed... The pigeon preening, uh, very well drawn, sir. Very well drawn. And Thank you. the other thing that I like so much, and to me, this is a sign of great art, when you take some very simple subject, and and you draw out its its divine significance, its spiritual significance, whatever you want to call that sense of the divine in everything. Uh, it's it's just it's a miraculous thing. It's it's so much better than simple poetry than than you know um, well I I won't per perjure our good friends and and uh, just say that that kind of poetry that takes the simple and and draws the sublime from it that's that's special wow. stuff and, and my you. brother you're to be congratulated you write beautifully. Uh, Thanks a lot. I love uh, Neruda's book, Odes to Common Things, with his like ode to the orange, uh, to the guitar, to the spoon, to salt, and <laughs> ode to bread, uh, where he takes these common things and like for three pages sometimes just brings all the richness out of them, uh, the specialness, uh, the divine quality, and the uh, funny, uh, fleshy significance and echoes. One of one of my favorite writers. Uh, uh, Italo Calvino, who, uh, who writes just wonderful, absurdist stuff uh, to my ear. Um, one of the pieces he recommends that uh, if you want to be a good writer, treat on some simple object, some simple act, not with the intention to share, just just to practice your capture, just to practice you know, working your craft. And I try to do that every day. Mm -hmm. And one funny time, I decided that I didn't feel particularly inspired, but I did have a few moments, and I thought, okay, what I really have to do is I have to collect our recyclables. That's what I've got to do. <laughs> I know. I'll do it and then make, you know, capture it, make make a something of it in word sculpture. And it, it, it was a, a pleasant, pleasant procedure. Wow. Sir... I have to thank you so much. Let me ask one final question. To writers who are troubled, to writers who have doubt, 
what do you say to a writer who says to you, I'm not sure, you know, is, should I write? What, what do you say to that voice? Uh, just keep going, keep going, keep going, and uh, keep writing, and uh, one finds one's voice, one finds uh, whether and how much they're passionate about it and want to keep going uh, onward. Uh, so, yeah, practice makes the master, as they say in the Czech Republic. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that would be my, my advice. And also, like uh, Neil Gaiman said, uh, I saw a little uh, intro about his master class, and he said something wonderful. He said, you have to have the conviction that you're brilliant, and, you and by writing it, you will set the world on fire. Nice line. Nice line. David, thank you so very much for spending some time with us. My pleasure. I, I can't wow. thank you enough. It's it's been a wonderful, enriching experience. Yes, deep and enjoyable and, and fun. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Namaste. Namaste. Okay, back to Mersa. Um Mersa, we may have to um add some additional time on to the broadcast, which means uh, when we run out of time, I may have to uh, start up a new show right away. So just kind of bear with me, okay? Yes, I can, I can see here we still have only 26 minutes remaining, so I am okay. going to be very very short. I'm going to short to speak very quickly. Um, well, we have, a, we have two parts for Corinna's show. So what I was going to do is if you want to introduce Corinna, and then um, when we run out of time, I was going to basically go on the board and line up a, just a time right after and add additional time. Okay? Okay. Very well. All right, because we're, we, we had a little issue here, so why don't you introduce Corinna, and then I will... Hopefully it won't cut us off. I will go in and, and add additional time. But if it cuts very off, well. we don't mind. Okay? Thank you very much. Sorry for, the technical, sorry for the technical difficulty. Thank you very much. So very much in short, very shortly, Corina Oproye is uh, the um, incorporation of uh, the poet, of the author, which has to adapt from a language to uh, another, actually to to other languages. She immigrated from Romania to Spain and she, wrote, she writes now half in Spanish, half in, um, um, half in Catalonian and uh, she actually managed to reach a very high level of her poetry in those languages from which none is her mother tongue. Nevertheless, her poetical talent and sensitivity um, helped, her, uh, helped her compensate this uh, Formal disadvantage, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Romanian, Spanish, and Catalonian poet and international poet, uh, Corina Oproe. Oh, I'm sorry. All right, so at this point, we're going to end this show just for a temporary moment. We're having some technical difficulties, and then I'm going to 
go back in and we're going to uh, continue the show as I add more time. So bear with us. I'm going to end the episode right now so I can add more time. And then I will call, I will basically uh, start it again. Okay, Marissa? And our audience? Okay. If you, if All you right. consider yeah. appropriate, I can I can pre- continue presenting uh, the today's authors during your trying to take some additional uh, broadcasting time? Well, it, it won't let us do that. That's the problem. It's going to cut us off at the two-hour mark, So I and then basically no one will hear you. So what I'm going to do, and again, I apologize to our audience. Don't you just love technology? Um, you got to kind of have a little bit of a sense of humor with this. So what I'm going to do, we only have 13 minutes left. I'm going to end the episode, but then I'm going to go back in, and I'm going to begin a new episode. And when you see the episode on air, then you then you can um, call in. Fair enough? Yes, it's all right. I, I took it. I understood. Okay, so I'm going to end the episode right now so I can begin a new one. I'm asking our audience overseas to please be patient with us. Again, technology is wonderful, but it has its quirks. So with that, um, I'm thanking you, Mirsa, and just stay tuned. Uh, I'm basically going to end the episode, and then what we're going to do is you will see the new episode will start um, basically where we're at, it'll start at, um, it'll be the three o'clock mark where I'm at. So the, the next, on the hour, in other words. Okay? Very well. All right. Thank you, Mirsa. We're going to do that right now. So Thank you, Jenny. hold tight. All right. Here we go. We're going to end the episode. All right. So we can start it again. <laughs> 